This is the time high school seniors are waiting for college admission letters, and the decision whether they attend a public or private college often comes down to money. But that line between public and private universities is getting blurry. Today on With Good Reason, private dollars but public mission. Later in the show, what does it take to get from foster care to college? I moved over 30 different homes, and going to school to school, I was always behind in my classes because I would have been in one subject in one school, and going to the next school, they're on a higher step than I was. But that I never gave up. I would always try harder. But first, public universities versus private universities. The difference used to be public schools received state funding and enrolled in-state students. But these days, state money is paying for a very small percentage of the budget for public colleges, which are turning more and more to private donors and raising tuition. Matthew Lambert has worked in development at both private and public universities. He's now vice president for university advancement at William & Mary, and the author of Privatization and the Public Good, Public Universities and the Balance. Matthew, with state support shrinking and dependence on private money increasing for most public colleges, what does the financial landscape of the future look like for public colleges? Well, Sarah, I think as we've seen over the last half century, public and private universities are increasingly a mixture of public finances, uh, tuition dollars, and private philanthropy. And I think that trend is just continuing to accelerate where most institutions that are private are still receiving public dollars and most institutions that are public are receiving private dollars. The shift has been toward uh, tuition dollars and philanthropy that is far exceeding uh, public dollars from the states today. What sort of public money are the private colleges getting? Well, when you look at research funding, which is a huge share of the overall budgets at uh, particularly premier private research universities, huge swaths of that are coming from the federal government, NSF, NIH. Now, that has changed, obviously, since the Great Recession in 2008, but we still see enormous sums uh, funding these private institutions, which, again, leads to the question of privatization is not necessarily uh, just the source of revenue. It really is also what you're doing with those dollars and your your mission or your focus. And what sort of private money are public colleges going after? Philanthropy is uh, the clear uh, winner in terms of where institutions are putting their focus today. Uh, You look at the uh, proverbial capital campaign, which used to be a rare occasion when institutions were trying to raise money for a building project or a specific purpose. These days, any university worth its salt is in a campaign eight out of 10 years, and in some cases, 10 out of 10 years. So philanthropy is really driving how they support and and, uh, ensure their futures. Private institutions obviously have been doing this for generations, and it was really bred into the alumni ethos, whereas public institutions really until the late 60s, early 70s, didn't have the same need. They were adequately funded by the state, They were able to keep tuition low. Buildings were funded by the state. But then you began to see the shift in the 70s into the 80s where more institutions saw declining revenues from the state and they were looking for other options. And 
In most cases, that was philanthropy. Help me understand what the history of these major fund drives in the billions of dollars have been on the part of privates and publics. There are extraordinary amounts of money being raised. When you look at, actually, Stanford is the first institution to raise a billion dollars every year, more than uh, Harvard, actually. And uh, the University of Southern California really blew everyone's mind when they uh, announced a campaign that was $6 billion. And that has since uh, been surpassed. But the publics, uh, like UVA, like the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a number of others have begun to engage in these campaigns for billions of dollars. The real challenge today is that there are fewer people uh, giving back to their institutions. The millennials in particular have very different giving habits than previous generations. So institutions are raising more money, but from fewer people. And actually the millennials are very philanthropic as well, but where they're giving is very different. So younger generations today are much less interested in large organizations, things they consider to be in their mind bureaucratic organizations, or places where they can have less impact, they would far prefer to go online and give $25 to a small one-room school in sub-Saharan Africa where they can see the immediate impact of their philanthropy than to give it to an institution that's trying to raise billions of dollars and their $25 in their mind doesn't make a lick of difference. So that's that's a change in where the dollars are going, not just uh, the sort of amount of them, but the, the focus of where people want to direct their philanthropy. You worked in development at a prestigious private college, Georgetown, in the Washington, D.C. area. Now you're working at a prestigious public. What are you seeing are the similarities and differences in fundraising and going after private funds for a private and a public university? What is interesting about Catholic universities and public universities, both of them had a a patriarch supporting them really up until the 1970s. In the case of the Catholic universities, that was the the greater Catholic Church. And then that really ended in the 70s and 80s. And similarly, public universities had the state, which was providing enormous support. For instance, here at William & Mary, in the 1970s, we were getting close to 50% of our support from the state, and today that's about 11%. I think what we've gotten over in public universities is where your average person used to say, well, my tax dollars support you, therefore I don't need to support you. And I think we've moved beyond that now where donors understand the state is providing a far smaller share, and it really is the private philanthropists who are providing more. That 11% of your budget coming from the state, is that happening to colleges and universities across the country? It is. If if you look at the best-funded states, so for instance, California and North Carolina, which were among the best-funded, they have dramatically changed uh, over the years The University of Virginia, for instance, is closer to 6% of its funding coming from the state. So you have a relatively small slice. And one of the arguments that I've made in my book is that finances alone do not define the public mission of an institution. You know, there really are many more factors that go into what makes an institution public or private. Because if you are purely going on finances, it's hard to make the argument that 6% or 11% or even 20% constitutes the majority of the funding uh, for that institution. In that book, Privatization and the Public Good, you interviewed 150 congresspeople, state lawmakers, public policy people, and college presidents. What did you learn from them? I I had um, worked in higher education uh, all my career and, and known 
from the university side how difficult it has been to see the dramatic change in finances, but also the fact that higher education is no longer loved in state capitals the way it once had a generation ago. When you look at legislators uh, from a generation ago, they thought of their uh, state's public institutions as really the jewels in their state crown. And today you get more criticism than you get praise from these institutions. So, you know, I, I found, among other things, that legislators in their slew of issues that they're covering today have a relatively thin understanding of higher education. And that's not surprising. They've got issues uh, across the board they're trying to deal with. But the small amount of mind share that they can devote to higher education in some ways has led to the small amount of funding that uh, institutions are seeing today. And again, it's still an enormous amount of money that states are designating, but it's a far lesser share than it was a generation ago. What did you find they wanted from public colleges? Did they want to create an educated citizenry to support democracy, or do they have other public goals for these institutions? Well, I would say definitively no uh, in terms of the focus on creating an educated citizenry. That was one of the main reasons why public institutions were created in the first place, was really to focus on the, uh, the need for an educated citizenry across the country. And today, uh, the interests of legislators are far more focused on vocational interests, practical applicability of education. So wanting to ensure that as soon as someone graduates from that institution, they are immediately employable. And that is not a silly a thought because parents feel the same way and students feel the same way. But we've lost a focus on education more broadly for creating a citizenry that will be engaged in civic education, civic engagement, uh, will be focused on lifelong learning. Uh, you know, the average college graduate today is going to have over their lifetime at least seven different incarnations of themselves. And if you are not learning to learn, you have a much harder time as you evolve in life and think about where you're going to go in your next incarnation. Do you feel that we're moving more and more to a system where the community colleges are going to be the low-cost alternative to a four-year degree and do more intensive job training certification, and that four-year institutions will still be creating the professional class and the liberal arts class? Well, you, you have to always remember that higher education is extremely diverse in the United States. We have 5,000 institutions public, private, large, small, liberal arts, research universities, community colleges, HBCUs. We have literally something for everyone. And so it's hard to say exactly where we're going, but I think you are beginning to see a bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots, where you've got a relatively small number of institutions at the top of the pile, let's call it 100 institutions, that have stockpiled enough resources that they can really weather whatever storms are coming down the road and, and whatever changes are coming. You know, I, I don't think anyone would say that Yale or Stanford or Harvard is going to have to change tomorrow the type of education that they're providing. But there's a lot more institutions further down the food chain where they're going to have to dramatically rethink what are their specialties. They can't provide uh, a liberal arts education necessarily to everyone, though they might want to because they're realizing they aren't bringing in enough students to support them. So I think you will find more of the community colleges focusing on 
direct vocational education, of which there's a great need in this country. I mean, we have right here in the eastern half of Virginia, we've got uh, several shipbuilders that are struggling to find enough welders to build the ships that they're building here. And, and you have similar cases all throughout the country with enough plumbers and electricians and uh, technicians to do the kinds of jobs that you need to have. But you also need, if you want to have a thriving economy, to have the kind of intellectual productivity that's going to lead to creating new things, building new things, not just literally being the one that is uh, on the ground building it. What is happening with tuition, though? Traditionally, parents from the middle class and below were resorting to the public colleges and universities so that there would be at least lower tuition than at private schools. But at many private schools, the tuition is high, but the endowment is able to help lower it for these kids, and the public colleges are raising tuition. Well, you're right, and I think what you're finding, particularly at the more elite private institutions, is that there's more financial aid for students that need it than you find at public institutions. We have still a fairly antiquated model of public higher education in our country. It's still state-based, meaning if you are living in a particular state, you have a lower tuition at that institution, whether you need that lower tuition or not. So in many states, uh, you have subsidization of families that need no subsidy, but because they live in that state and they pay taxes, they have much lower tuition. Now, what that's led to is a point where the resources are not necessarily going to those families that need it. And, you know, I, I think some of this model dates back to our earlier agrarian society uh, when you needed an institution that was close because most people were born, went to college, worked, and died within 50 miles of the same spot. Today, state borders mean a whole lot less than they did even 25 years ago. National borders don't even mean as much as they did 25 years ago. And so to insist that someone, because they're living in that state, should have lower tuition, whether they need it or not, is not necessarily, in my opinion, the right, the right measure. You'd be much wiser to focus those resources on the families that really need that support and on focusing resources on bringing people in from another state or another country who will then, after they finish college, continue to work in that state and add to the economy of that state. State lawmakers do not want to hear that. State lawmakers want to believe that North Carolinians are paying for a public college and sending their sons and daughters there to get a good education. That's right. You know, North Carolina has a cap of 18% out of state. In Virginia here, it's 35%. In California, it used to be closer to 10%, uh, but now that has grown a good bit. And the reality is that out-of-state students are paying for the education of in-state students because the state, as we talked about earlier, is not providing enough support. The reason in most cases that tuition has risen is a direct reflection of the decline in state revenues. Now, not always, and I would say one of the areas where higher education has gotten hit on the chin appropriately is by uh, not being as efficient as we would need to be, not being as resource efficient as we have to be in the years ahead. We have to improve on that, no question, but the immediate impact of declining state revenues is an increase in tuition. Is there concern that public universities are more likely now to accept big gifts with ideological strings attached? 
For instance, there was a study that BB&T was giving money to universities, stipulating that they teach the works of free market capitalist Ayn Rand. Well, I think you are seeing those in, in increasing numbers of places, and I think there's evidence of that in California of uh, pharmaceutical companies that were providing resources to biology and chemistry departments in exchange for having first crack at the ideas and, and the research that, that came out of those departments. And there's evidence, obviously, of, of funding that the Koch brothers have put into North Carolina for particular research centers that are ideologically right. And similarly, George Soros putting funding into ideological left. So you do have evidence of these for sure. And I think there's increasing skepticism from faculty of any gifts that come with strings attached like that. What about America's role as the premier higher education nation? Are we slipping in that regard? Well, I think other countries still look at us as the premier institutions. Uh, And I think because we have a very decentralized system, we've been able to proliferate lots of great institutions. Uh, When you look at some of the nationalized systems of Europe, of Asia, of Latin America, I think there's much less opportunity for the kinds of innovation that you find at our institutions here in the United States, which again makes the case for greater autonomy of these institutions. I think legislators and members of Congress prefer to have greater control over these institutions. But when you have that level of autonomy, these institutions really have been able to create many more opportunities for entrepreneurism in every sense of the word in higher education. So I think where we're seeing changes is that in Asia, in India, in Europe, the institutions there have built dramatically, and I think they've seen a huge influx of funding from their countries So they are improving, but you would still see the United States as the leader of higher education. You look at any ranking in the world today, and you look at the top 25, it's still going to have a majority of institutions from the United States. Have we experienced recently a reduction in students coming from foreign nations because of changes to our immigration policy? And is that affecting colleges? Yes, there has been a decline. It's been a a long-trending decline going back to September the 11th, and we had seen some improvement in the late 2000s and early 2010s, but again, a a decline uh, most recently here. And I think the real challenge that has for institutions is particularly for those uh, smaller or more regional institutions, the so-called directionals. These institutions had been able to grow and maintain only because of international students. Because if you look at the demographics in this country, we're, we're seeing a declining birth rate. You know, really, the, the growth is coming from international students. The other benefit of international students is they are full tuition-paying students. So yes, international students are an important part of the revenue mix, and any decline in those international students really portends difficulties in the years ahead. You look around the country today, and you see institutions that are thriving, yet higher education is the subject of more criticism than just about everything else in the country other than Congress right now. So we are not at the pinnacle of national support right now, and I think we have to regain that trust of the American people. I think we have to show them again the incredible value of an education. You know, every economic study you look at today will still tell you There is enormous value to the individual and to the society from an educated citizenry. 
and we need to continue to maintain a first-rate uh, educational system, but that doesn't come cheaply. You know, there's a, a famous economic comparison that it takes the same number of people to play a symphony today as it did 200 years ago. Higher education is not unlike that. Even while we experiment with online opportunities, at the end of the day, you still have a professor and students working together through ideas and issues. And so we, we have to continue to find opportunities for efficiency, but also understand revenues do have to come from somewhere to fund that enterprise. Matthew Lambert is Vice President for University Advancement at William & Mary. He's the author of Privatization and the Public Good, Public Universities in the Balance. Our next segment looks at what happens to foster children when they age out of foster care but need to go to college. It's hard enough to go from high school to college when you have the support of parents, but it's a lot harder without anyone who really cares or has your back. That's where Great Expectations comes in. It's a program created by the Virginia Community Colleges that provides life coaches for these young people to make the leap from foster care to college and then the workforce. Jenna Cagle has the story of Leana and her coach. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know where the books were. I didn't know, do I just walk in there and grab a book? And I, I just didn't know how the process worked. This is Leanna. Leanna is a 22-year-old student at Germana Community College. After going from foster care to college, when it came to buying books, she didn't even know where to start. Because I know I had financial aid, but I didn't know how to use it because I didn't know if it came on a card or whatever. Fortunately, Leanna had someone to coach her through it. Taylor Landry. Yeah, I helped Leanna get her textbooks. You know, we went to the bookstore together and we talked about how her textbooks could be paid for with her financial aid, uh, which is something a lot of students don't know about. She just helped me. Like, instead of for me being stressed and struggling to make sure I did everything right, she was there to actually help me. And then she showed me how to do my financial aid. And this is something Taylor deals with a lot. She works as a coach for a program called Great Expectations. It matches foster students with adults who can help with everything. Taylor is one of more than 20 coaches who work at all but two of the community colleges in Virginia. She sees about 90 students. I have helped lots of students go get their textbooks, help them realize that they had to have textbooks. I have notebooks and pens and pencils in my office because sometimes students show up for the first day of class and they don't have anything with them. Even our more high-achieving students, our coaches spend a lot of time saying, okay, you need to apply for this scholarship. I'm going to help you. Who is, who's going to write your recommendation letters? Okay, I'll write one. Who else are you going to uh, get to write a letter? You know, all that stuff that a parent would do for their child. This is the program director, Rachel Strong. She says the coaches are more than just school counselors. And all of it is made harder because of where these kids come from. You've absolutely experienced some trauma just by the nature of you know, ending up in foster care, you've definitely had a traumatic experience as a child where you wouldn't have ended up in foster care. You know, it's not that you can't recover from that and you can achieve. It just makes the little things that happen and the big things that happen a little bit harder to deal with. This is something Liana knows really well. From age 3 to 17, she was shuffled from group home to facility to foster home back to group home. 
She suffered through instability, abuse, and neglect. I moved over 30 different homes. And going to school to school, I was always behind in my classes because I would have been in one subject in one school and going to the next school, they're on a higher step than I was. But that I never gave up. I would always try harder in in my schooling. Luckily, I would I never got filled back. I was every time every year when it was time to do report cards, I was barely passing. And I feel like my teachers knew my situations because I always told my teacher like I'm trying, and they understood. So when I I was supposed to get an F, they just barely passed me, just where I could not get held back. And I know they did that. So I thank my teachers. And um, I went to group homes. I even went to an orphanage. And that's when my sister and I reunited. She left me when I was 12. And at age 14, I was finally be able to be with her again. And the foster girls I would live with would tell me how to do my hair. They were actually big sisters. They would teach me how to clean myself. They would just do all these things that I never thought was a girl was supposed to do. And I that's when I started finding who I was and then I started noticing that they were when they turned 18 and most of the foster homes I was in when they turn 18 most of the girls become prostitutes and then boys that lived in my house became drug dealers or associated with some type of gang activity and I looked at them and I didn't want to be like them. The numbers back up what Leanna saw. Rachel says the odds are stacked against kids who age out of foster care. Of young people who experience foster care, almost 75% of men will be incarcerated sometime by the time they're 26 years old, and about 40% of women. But Great Expectations is helping these young adults beat the odds. And Liana is a success story. Sometimes she just needs someone to remind her of that. Like a few months ago. Taylor and Liana take it from here. Liana came into my office and she just seemed, she looked exhausted, honestly. And then she looked at me, she noticed like, something's not right, like, you want to talk about it? And I said, at first I said no, because usually people don't care, but then I was like, oh wait, it's Taylor, she actually does care. And she started so talking like, about, she's the type you know, her sister had gone into labor prematurely and Liana's car had broken down and she was having a hard time in her living situation and on top of that, she's working and she's trying to go to college. Um, I feel like everything was so just falling just down. You know, I was doing so good and then it's like crazy. Your life could go so good and you have a roof over your head, you're making great money, you have a car, and then all of a sudden you lose your car. Your sister's messed up and then your, your mom, she lies about you to the cops and then now you have nowhere to go, and then now you just have to start all over again. I said, you know, mostly I, I just listened and listened to what was going on and tried to encourage her to stay persistent and keep doing what, what she's good at, which is overcoming those obstacles and overcoming those challenges. So I just needed to tell her she's doing everything right. Liana is studying to get her nursing degree and she hopes to graduate in 2019. For With Good Reason, I'm Jenna Cagle. This is With Good Reason, 
We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Up next are two interviews, one about welding and becoming a welder, the other about the future of shipbuilding. Here's Andrew the welder. And so I was out of work for about 12 months, just kind of feeling sorry for myself, and I had to find something to get me going again and to get my passion back in life. And as soon as I took the welding classes, I just knew. And here's Jennifer, the shipbuilder. I mean, shipbuilding is, is nationwide. We have the Gulf Coast region, the Pacific Northwest, California, as well as the Northeast. So shipbuilding really is nationwide for us. Andrew's joy, discovering how much he loves welding, does have a connection to the sea change we're about to undergo in how we build ships. Both are getting huge infusions of money to educate and retrain the workforce. Let's start with the welder, Andrew Folsom. The art of welding is seeing a resurgence in Virginia thanks to a new workforce grant program. Andrew Folsom fell in love with welding after he took a class at Blue Ridge Community College. Now he's the one teaching welding to construction workers, artists, veterans, men and women, old and young, and revealing the power this hands-on craft has to transform their lives as it did his own. Andrew, you call yourself a welding nerd. Absolutely. Why why do you say that? I have such a passion for welding. Uh, So when I'm not working at the lab teaching students and I'm not working in my own shop at home, I'm on the Internet, I'm reading books, I'm talking to people on forums. Um, I'm just 100% committed to welding. Are you a master welder? Absolutely not. Nope. Five years into it, I'm not a master welder. I'm just a drop in the bucket. So you started welding when you were 20? Approximately 20. That's when I first got started, just messing around in my dad's garage, nothing doing anything real. Uh, and then I actually went to Blue Ridge and took the community college welding program. Uh, and I signed up for classes and took the basic, the intermediate, and the pipe level classes, an advanced level class. Did you know right away you loved it? From the first minute I struck an arc. It was instant passion, uh, and I just never wanted to do anything else. Had you gone to college before that? Uh, I did, actually. I went to Blue Ridge uh, and got my criminal justice degree. And I enjoyed it a lot, but it just wasn't grabbing me the way that I needed my career to grab me. So did you have another profession for a while? Uh, I was actually working in retail, uh, working at a home improvement store. uh, And I just kind of got tired of the retail life. And what was that moment when you thought, I'm going to take a course? Well, I actually got into a uh, workplace accident. Uh, that severely hurt my back. And so I was out of work for about 12 months, just kind of feeling sorry for myself. And I had to find something to get me going again and to get my passion back in life. And as soon as I took the welding classes, I just knew. Do you think the world needs more welders? Absolutely. Right now, we need qualified welders more than ever, whether it be building bridges or the uh, some of the pipelines that are coming through, obviously have welders involved. Um, for most of our students coming right out of our program after taking 16 weeks of classes, they can expect to start around the 14 or $15 an hour range. And for a lot of people, that's 3 or $4 an hour more than they ever thought that they could make. Um, you know, we have some students who have been welding for several years now, and they're making $26, $27, $28 an hour, uh, which has changed their lives. It's completely turned around their lives when you make that kind of honest money. Do you ever get inquiries from businesses that are looking for qualified welders? Absolutely. Our, our, uh, our school was founded um, because the local industry said we need more qualified welders that are welding at a higher end. Uh, I can't tell you how many times if you go to a local brewery, you will see 
miles of piping in some cases, and every one of those pipes had to be welded together. So the first course you offer is eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Students come in mostly young? Uh, I would say the average age, probably around 25. Um, The first two weeks, we cover oxyacetylene welding, kind of the bare bones basic. Uh, And then after two weeks of oxyacetylene, we do two weeks of TIG welding. Uh, And then after the TIG welding, we do stick welding which is probably the easiest process to get a job with locally. And then we finally finish up with wire feed welding. Uh, And then in the second eight weeks, we work on the intermediate class. And that class is all about um, trying to qualify a welding test. Uh, Every time a welder gets a new job, they have to go and show their skills. It's one of those jobs you can't just walk in and say, here's my resume, here's what I can do. No, they want to see you weld. If you have a weld that fails, you can have a building that would collapse. Uh, I know a couple of months ago, I believe it was, they had that huge oil leak out in the west uh, where millions of gallons of oil came down, and I believe that it might have been uh, down to a, a bad weld. Are there any welders in the nation who have such a reputation that most really good welders have heard of them? Absolutely. Um, I think one of my favorite people, uh, he's kind of a YouTube sensation. His name is Jody Collier. And now that he's getting a little older, his job to himself is to make these YouTube videos to show people what it takes to make a good weld and to do step-by-step things. There's tons of Instagram welders now. Instagram has really opened up the, the sharing of your images. You know, I'll make a weld and I'll say, hey, that looks pretty cool, and I'll put it on my Instagram website. I can't imagine what would be a cool weld. I mean, isn't it just two things coming together at a right angle with some metal there? Eh, a lot of people think of it that way. Uh, to simplify, that's what it is. But every weld has a, a signature. I can look at my weld and tell the difference between my weld and my boss's weld, and you can recognize it. Like I said, it's a signature. And this class that you're teaching comes from a new program called the New Economy Workforce Credentials Grant. That's correct. And it pays two-thirds of your tuition if you're eligible. So it's really changing people's lives and giving them the opportunity to take these classes and, and trying something new and seeing if they can change their career. So a lot of these people are already in the workforce. They're working jobs that they don't particularly like, but they're stuck. Uh, they need to make the money. Uh, and so with this Workforce Credentials Grant, they're able to take the classes in the evenings and on the weekends uh, and build up their skill good enough to where they can leave their job that's not their favorite and move on to a brand new career. So a student of mine came through about a year ago. He was working in a grocery store. I think he's making about $9 an hour as a 30-year-old man. He didn't even have enough money to pay for the the one-third of the tuition that the state didn't cover. So he borrowed some money from his brother-in-law and worked part-time for his brother-in-law, I believe, at a construction company trying to pay that debt off. And now this young man is making $19 an hour, and he's paid off most of his student loans, he's paid off most of his credit card bills, and he's able to go and enjoy life. He can go on vacation. He can afford to have fun. Did you start out with very few in your classes, but it's grown? Honestly, it's been almost full from the very beginning. Um, We have an amazing state-of-the-art laboratory. We just purchased two of the Lincoln Welding uh, Vertex, the virtual welding simulators. You know, if your angle is wrong, if you're going too fast, if if your welding rod is too far away from the plate, when you finish your weld, it tells you that. And when they go back into the welding booth, they can see the transfer of the knowledge. They can say, well, you know, when I was using the virtual welder, I had to have my elbow up a little higher to get a good angle. And when they move into the booth, they know to put their elbow up. Do you think you've saturated the market where you live with really great welders and people are having to go far afield to find jobs? Our goal is to try to saturate the field with good welders. And I think we're starting to get there. We've been around for three years Uh, You know, we've qualified over 300 students, and 75 of our students are still locally employed. Uh, One of the things that we um, focus on is soft skills, 
everyone thinks about welders as being these rough and tumble guys, you know, getting hot, burning themselves with long bushy beards. But the reality is the uh, the small things, the soft skill matters. Being able to communicate with the people around you, showing up on time, showing up matters. Doing the best job you can matters. Being able to communicate with the people that you work with is very important to do. You care a lot about the ones you teach. You stay in touch. <laughs> I absolutely do. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I email, text message, phone calls constantly. I would say at least once a week I'll hear from somebody. Uh, and that's my favorite thing about this job that I have is is changing people's lives because it changed my life. It got me from a place I didn't want to be, and it gave me passion. It gave me hope. And so if I can just share a little bit of that with some students, uh, that's that's my job is to is to show them that I care and give them everything. Um, you know, I'll have students first day on the job, they're getting ready to go to work and they'll call me, hey, uh, I can't remember how many amps do you run if you're burning a 7018 electrode? And I'll talk to them and I'll calm them down a little bit. Um, you know, being able to recommend good companies to work for, um, good strong companies that have good values and that, that, that pay their employees fairly is very important. You've also got another program that you've started doing with people who like to weld for artistic purposes. Sure. Uh, so we've started doing a modern metal art class. Uh, this one woman made this beautiful uh, praying mantis out of silverware that she put in her garden. Um, so we work with a lot of people like that. Uh, we're working with uh, a war paints group, which is a group for veterans uh, who can come in and just kind of release some of their um, creative juices. Um, the gentleman that started the program said that when he came back from one of his deployments, he started painting. And he realized how much it calmed him and how much it kind of brought him back to center. And so he started this war paints program um, to show other veterans it's okay to need to release. And so they come to this lab. We provide the welding gloves. We provide the jackets. We provide the hoods. You just got to show up with a good pair of leather boots and safety glasses, and we take care of the rest. Do you have, do you have any women who are doing the actual welding or only the artsy welding? Oh, we have plenty of women that have come through our classes. I... I it annoys me when people say that women don't belong in this type of workforce. I'll be honest with you. I prefer working with the female students because it's not about an ego. They don't care what the guy next to them is working on. They care about them, and they want to do the best they can. Um, so I really enjoy it when the females come into our welding program, whether it be on the arts side of it or whether it be on the structural side and are trying to make a name for themselves. Is there some worry in the industry that the robots are going to come along and wipe out welding? So technology is definitely encroaching into the welding world, and I personally think it's a great thing. I think you have to embrace technology to move forward, and if you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. Um, you know, a lot of people see these robotic welders, and they think, oh, great, I'm going to be out of a job here shortly. But the truth of the matter is you have to be a qualified welder to program the robotic welders. There's always going to be welding that can't be done by a robot that's, you know, 300 feet up in the air underneath a sky or inside of a skyscraper. Uh, underwater welding is a lot of things that people talk about. Um, there's always going to be welding jobs uh, for those people who are willing to embrace the technology and move forward with it. You know, there's been so much hand-wringing over the loss of the automobile industry, the loss of the iron mining industry, and all of these others where men and women could work with their hands, mm -hmm. be outdoors some of the time. Do you see a possibility that we could have sort of a resurgence in rebuilding America's infrastructure? I sure hope so. Um, a lot of the jobs now that people work um, that they're not happy with sitting in an office, sitting in a cubicle, I bet there's millions of people who 
work Monday through Friday, eight to five on a computer, but then when they go home, they're in their garage. They're building simple things. And if we could just push them to try to change your life, which is really hard for to tell someone, we want you to take these classes, see if you like it, see if you're good at it is another big part of it, and then drop everything you've ever known and start a new career. And for the people in their young, in their mid to early 20s, that's not a big deal. Uh, but some students we get are in their 30s, 40s. Uh, we've even had some people who are retired that just kind of wanted to come in and learn how to weld. Um, but career changers are a lot of the people that we get that come through our program. Have you heard from the Virginia governor or the chancellor of the community college system about just how popular this program is that's a new funding effort by them? Absolutely. I, I believe the instructors, myself and all the other instructors, put everything we have into this program. You know, with my students, I'm in their booths all the time. I'm watching them weld. My favorite thing to do is to sneak into their booths when they know when they don't know that I'm there, because if you know I'm behind you, you're going to weld like I asked you to. But if you have <laughs> no idea that I'm standing right behind you, you're going to do what you think is right. And that's when I get to say, well, you know, I noticed you weren't doing the, the U shape like I was telling you, or you, you weren't quite holding it long enough on the left side. Almost with every single one of my students, I will grab their hands while they're holding the welding rods, and I will physically weld with them so they can feel the muscles, so they can feel how fast I'm going. And some people just have to be shown in a lot of different ways. So it just varies greatly between each student. This just sounds wonderful. I would take your class. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this on With Good Reason. Absolutely. I've very much enjoyed it today. Andrew Folsom is a welding instructor at Blue Ridge Community College. Some of the welders trained by Andrew may join the ranks of Newport News Shipbuilding, which is next to the largest naval base in the world off the coast of Virginia. Newport News Shipbuilding is investing in augmented reality to more efficiently craft the next generation of Navy ships. Jennifer McKaylee is a professor of engineering at nearby Old Dominion University. She's also a fourth-generation builder of ships. Her great-grandfather built ships in England in the 1800s, then immigrated to Newport News Shipbuilding to build ships for the U.S. Navy. His son-in-law also worked there, and so did his grandson, Jennifer's father, who also worked on the first prototype nuclear reactor for the aircraft carrier the USS Enterprise. Jennifer is expert in ship design, production, and testing. Jennifer, you're helping convert the building of ships from a process that requires tons of paper to one that is all digital. Yes, yes, we're very excited about this. It's, it's, it's really happening in other industries already and bringing all kinds of exciting tools, augmented and virtual reality to 3D scanning to 3D modeling into shipbuilding to harness the efficiencies of those technologies into designing, building, and maintaining ships and submarines. So the way we had been designing and building ships was very paper-based. What the industry and the Navy is looking at now is taking all of that to a digital format, to going paperless, to being able to design something on a computer, take that to a tablet, 
give that to a welder or a pipe fitter or ship fitter and for him or her to then go and and do their work so much more efficiently. And if there's updates to the design, they're getting those in real time. So everything will be all connected in, in the near future to achieve these efficiencies and cost savings. Has the Navy felt sort of behind the times in this regard up to now? Are we playing catch up with other industries? I, I believe that in the in the aerospace industry, in the automotive industry, these advances have been happening, which is wonderful to see. The uniqueness about shipbuilding is that we are not mass producing parts. There is a tremendous amount of complexity in the assembly of ships and submarines. And so we have to try to pull as much as we can from the successes happening in automotive and aerospace and advanced manufacturing sectors into the shipbuilding and ship repair industry. What new ships has the Navy commissioned to be built in the near future? Regionally here with Newport News Shipbuilding, they are currently building the Ford class, which is the next generation aircraft carriers. And they're also working with Electric Boat in Connecticut on the Ohio Repair placement class submarine, which is going to be called the Columbia class submarine. So those are two of the largest programs in the Navy. I mean, shipbuilding is is nationwide. We have the Gulf Coast region doing such a wide variety of shipbuilding, the Pacific Northwest, California, as well as the Northeast. So shipbuilding really is nationwide for us. And these changes that are happening at these tier one shipyards, we would call them, will then be able to be translated to the workforce and the companies of the shipyards nationwide. And do you think all the shipyards are trying to do this, go digital? Yes, the technology is there and it's ready and it's the workforce. You know, even for me, I'm, I'm, I have freshmen coming into my class. They are more comfortable doing 3D design than paper-based design. They're more comfortable in an augmented and virtual reality space than not. So, and, you know, and these are the 18, 19, 20-year-olds. So now I look at my children, for example, my four and six-year-old, I'm having to, you know, balance their tablet time, right? You hear about their screen time. And it's a fine line because so much of their learning process is now based on tablets and technology. So it's not about oh, they're watching cartoons on it. They're truly learning and advancing at such a fast rate. And that's the future of the workforce and shipbuilding and other manufacturing sectors. And so we need to make these changes now and and create these pipelines so that we can attract and retain the best and brightest into these fields. But haven't these shipyards employed tens of thousands of blue-collar and middle-class Americans who were getting paid well for great jobs that they worked very hard at but will now not be able to do because they're now digitized beyond their ability to keep up. Oh, no, I don't believe so at all. I mean, this is not about replacing jobs with computers. This is about upskilling the current workforce and preparing the next generation workforce for this. So what we're looking to achieve is harnessing the technologies and driving down the costs and increasing the efficiency in what we're already doing. 
And that's the best thing for the nation. I mean, we, we have our large fleet of ships and submarines. We have our large industrial base supporting commercial ships for, for transporting goods in and out of the country, um, for supporting commerce, for international trade. I mean, all of these ships and, and vessels will still need to be designed, built, and maintained, but the technology will allow us to do it quicker and more efficiently and at a lower cost. We've received what's called a Go Virginia grant to bring together the K through 12 community colleges, higher education, and really create pathways for people to pursue their passion, whether their passion is welding or IT and cyber or design and engineering or business, there's opportunities for them in the shipbuilding industry so that they can prepare themselves for these exciting careers and at the same time stand up a digital shipbuilding lab that will allow us at the university setting to not only do research and education for our students or workforce training for the current workforce, but to do outreach and reaching into the elementary and, and middle and high schools and have these young people come into the lab, experience digital shipbuilding, and really see how exciting it is to design and build ships for the U.S. It was exciting to hear you talk about the building of a new class of aircraft carrier. Tell me the sorts of changes we might see in the finished product. The, the Ford class, which is this next generation aircraft carrier, is so much more technology and warfighting capability. I mean, they're looking at the rail gun and, and laser weapons, a much more sophisticated electrical system, so much automation. So they're reducing the crew size on the vessels. So there's so much technology packed into really the same platform that they have built in the past. So many companies across the nation are supporting the shipbuilding industry. And this type of upskilling and training will have to translate to all of those touch points in the supply chain. So it's not just about changing how our welders are doing things or how our shipbuilders are doing things. It's a company in Iowa that's providing critical parts that will go on that aircraft carrier. If that digital thread is truly going to be robust, it will be about training those folks all across the country in order to be able to support the industry. Well, that's wonderful. Jennifer McKaylee, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jennifer McKaylee is a professor of engineering technology at Old Dominion University. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends, smithfieldfoods.com. 
Come to the Virginia Festival of the Book in Charlottesville, March 21st through 25th. Five days, hundreds of authors. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Kelly Libby are our producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.